Uh, we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 8, where we see the tables turn, and uh, the Jews go from mourning to rejoicing. And uh, that's really a great picture of salvation, that we go from mourning our sin to rejoicing uh, in our salvation through Christ, that our sins have been forgiven, that they've been paid for, uh, we have hope uh, of the future, uh, we have the hope of heaven, um, and ultimately that uh, day when we will never sin again. So Esther chapter 8, and uh, let's begin by reading this chapter together, and then we'll talk about it and see what implications might be here for our lives today. Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king and if I have found favor before him and the matter seems proper to the king and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring, for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked." So the king's scribes were called at the time of the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to every province according to its script, and every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language." And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal study, stud. In them, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble, to defend themselves, to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil, on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. Then the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there, for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Father, we pause and want to say thank you for preserving this story in your word for us to be encouraged by and challenged by. I pray that the same spirit who inspired this text, who also dwells within us and among us, would illuminate our minds now to understand what is here and what is meant by these words and how they apply to our lives so that we could leave here today better equipped 
to be more of who you want us to be. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the goal of our study of the book of Esther has been to learn to see the providence of God in everything that happens to us. And though God is never mentioned once in this book, his sovereign hand can be clearly seen working behind the scenes through ordinary people and ordinary means to rescue the Jews from a vicious plot to annihilate them. And through every twist and turn of this dramatic and ironic tale, God's wise and loving care for his people is put on display through what the world would call a series of coincidences, but actually are the marvelous and mysterious workings of God's providence. And again, just a very simple uh, definition of God's providence is God's provision and protection of his people. And if you're one of God's people, one of his children, you're a child of the king, he will provide for you and he will protect you in the most ordinary ways, through ordinary means and through ordinary people. But it will be the marvelous and mysterious workings of his providence. And so studying Esther... Uh, should serve to sharpen our spiritual perception as believers so we can more quickly and more easily see and recognize God's invisible hand at work in everything that happens in our world and everything that happens in our lives. And hopefully you're learning to notice more quickly, more frequently, um, just in the little things of life. When something happens and go, oh, what a coincidence, or, oh, we got lucky, you say, wow, that was providential. Man, that's sweet providence. Isn't God good in the way that he orchestrated the events to work out in our favor? I think it also should help us not just to recognize God's providence, but to rest in God's providence and to rejoice in God's providence, especially when we find ourselves in what appear to be desperate, hopeless situations and we're tempted to wonder and even ask, where is God in all of this? Now, I think it would be important to say this as well, that The story of Esther is no guarantee that every situation in our lives will turn out as well for us as it did for the Jews. But the happy ending that we are beginning to see here unfold should encourage us to maintain a proper perspective whenever our, as we've been using this analogy, our hut is on fire and the smoke is billowing up into the sky, little do we realize summoning our rescue. Well, we left off last week in chapter 7 where we witnessed Haman getting hit by his own boomerang. And we saw the biblical principle uh, in chapter 7 of divine justice, the law of retribution, what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow, your sin will find you out, or as we decided to call it, the boomerang effect. And Haman was swept up in the providential plans of the Lord and his sin was found uh, and he ended up being executed on the Sam Houston-sized spike that had been built to kill Mordecai. And so he himself became the citywide spectacle that he had intended and hoped Mordecai to be. But we ended last week admitting that even though divine justice had been meted out, and Haman got what he deserved, and the enemies of the Jews was dead, they were still not out of the woods. Because the king's edict to massacre them was still in effect, and it couldn't be changed. And I liken that to uh, the end of a movie when the bad guy gets killed, but the time bomb that he had set to blow up New York City, for example, was still ticking down, and they had to figure out how to defuse it before it explodes. Haman had set the bomb to go off in 12 months. We know that from chapter 3, verse 13, and 
three months had already passed. Chapter 8, verse 9, we saw that as we read it. So unless someone or something intervened, within nine months, the Persians would attack the Jews and wipe them off the face of the earth. And as exiles in the Persian Empire, the Jews were were greatly outnumbered. There were 15 million Jews among an estimated 100 million Persians. So the odds were definitely stacked against the Jews. But we don't believe in odds. We believe in providence. And so here in chapter 8, we see the providence of God once again orchestrate an amazing turn of events. And the tables are completely turned we use that idiom, the tables turn, to describe a, a change in a situation in which someone gains an advantage over someone else who previously had an advantage over them. And the expression comes from games like checkers or chess or backgammon, um, which are known as table games. And when we talk about the tables being turned, it means that you reverse the the board, if you will, or the table, so the players play from their opponent's previous position. In other words, you're in a you're in a bad spot, and you've just been checkmated, and right, you, you got no options. You're you you've been uh, backed into a corner, and then all of a sudden, the tables are turned, and somebody takes the chessboard and turns it around, and guess what? Now they're checkmated, and you have the advantage. And that's pretty much what happens here in chapter 8, which I've divided into five sections here, the promotion, the plea, the proclamation, the party, and the proselytes. So let's look at the first of all, the promotion, the promotion. And here, we, here it says, on that day, which was the same day that Haman was hanged, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So what a turn of events here. Uh, on the very same day that Haman was skewered on that spike, King Ahasuerus gave all of Haman's property to his wife, Queen Esther, and to Mordecai. And this was a, a Persian custom, by the way, for the state to confiscate a criminal's property. And since the king didn't need it or want it, he passed it on to Esther, who put Mordecai in charge of it. And ironically, again, Haman had hoped to confiscate the Jews' property, and his property got confiscated by the Jews. Apparently, Esther had also revealed that Mordecai was her guardian who had raised her after she was orphaned. And so the king and Mordecai were now relatives by marriage. And so Ahasuerus brought him in and gave him the signet ring that he had taken back from Haman before he was executed, and he made Mordecai the new prime minister. He was his new right-hand man. And so again, Esther and Mordecai were sitting pretty right now, They were, uh, and so were the Jews because of the strategic placement of these two people. Again, you've got a Jewish queen, and you've got a Jewish prime minister, And again, I think the words of Mordecai explain what God was up to in Esther chapter 4. Again, this is the theme of, of, uh, of our entire book here. Esther chapter 4 verse 13, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty, what? For such a time as this. Well, now Mordecai was, had, had attained royalty, if you will, or position for such a time 
as this. And so this was uh, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that he made to Esther back in chapter four, because now he was in just as much of a strategic position as she was to be used by God to deliver the Jews from this holocaust. And so he was promoted, number one. Number two is the plea. The plea, notice verse three. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and so Esther arose and stood before the king. So Esther appeared before the king a second time, uninvited, unsummoned, but her boldness had obviously increased since she had now found favor um, the first time and was clearly back in the good graces of the king. So she went back and sure enough, he extended that golden scepter once again and received her into his presence. Verse five, then she said, if it pleases the king and if I have found favor before him and the matter seems proper to the king and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? And so once again, she beseeched the king with great emotion, with great, uh, a great burden on her heart for her people, and she begged him to stop Haman's evil plot from coming to pass. And she asked him to revoke Haman's decree to exterminate the Jews But we know that the decrees of the Persian kings were what? Irrevocable. Chapter 1, verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed. This was the decree against Vashti banishing her as his queen. But it was clear that the king's edicts could not be repealed. We, we know that from the same time period in the book of Daniel when uh, King Darius, who was the Persian king uh, at the time, they had just uh, overthrown the Babylonian empire and Daniel just went from being the Babylonians, uh, the king, Babylonian king's advisor to the Persian king's advisor And so all the other advisors didn't like Daniel and they were looking for a way to get him killed. And so they coaxed Darius and really deceived Darius into declaring that if anyone prayed to any other God besides him, that they were to be executed. And so he thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. And so he made this decree, well, As soon as that decree was finalized, these wicked advisors ran off to find Daniel where they knew they would find him doing what? Praying. Three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And so he was arrested and they brought him before the king, King Darius, and said, hey, we've captured Daniel. He's been breaking the law. He's been praying to someone else besides you. And again, three times in Daniel chapter 6, we read, now the king established the injunction, signed the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Verse 12, then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lines then? The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And then again in verse 15, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. That was their way of 
telling him, even though he wanted to rescue Daniel, his beloved advisor, there was nothing he could do about it. And so Darius had to spend that sleepless night wondering if Daniel survived the lion's den. So obviously the Persian government is not like our government where you can reverse decisions and you can revoke laws and you can declare some decisions or laws even unconstitutional, right? It seems like every, every four years when there's a new president, right? The very first thing he does is he changes all the laws the previous president made. So that was not like the Persian government. Ahasuerus couldn't revoke the edict, but he could nullify it by issuing a second edict or a new decree that was favorable to the Jews. And that's what he recommended. Look at the proclamation in verse 7. So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So the king gave Esther and Mordecai permission to write another decree that would counteract or or override or supersede the the previous decree that Haman had written and give the Jews authority to defend themselves and to annihilate anyone who might attack them and try to plunder them. In other words, this was simply giving them a fighting chance. Verse 9, so the king's scribes were called at the time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, On the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the prince of the provinces, which extended from the India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and to their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the people so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So Mordecai wrote a decree. He sealed it with the king's signet ring and he sent it throughout the Persian Empire just like the previous one had been sent. And notice how the language here, again, you'd have to go back to Uh, the previous chapters where Haman sent his decree, but Mordecai intentionally used the same language as the original edict to make it unmistakable to everyone the purpose of this new decree. It was clearly intended to counteract the old decree. In other words, these were countermeasures intended to neutralize the threat to the Jews And so it called for a measure-for-measure retaliation by the Jews. Again, not to attack, but to take up arms and defend themselves if they were attacked. And so I think the basic message that Mordecai wanted to communicate through this, this new decree was don't attack the Jews. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which was the day Haman had determined for the Jews to be destroyed by the casting of the lots. He was discouraging people from following through on Haman's decree. And again, this new decree was written and sent out in the third month, a little over two months after Haman's decree, which gave the Jews about nine months to prepare to defend themselves. And um, again, I, I think it's interesting that the, the, the Persian postal service there, 
was these men riding, couriers on horses, riding on steeds, sired by the royal study. This was the ancient Pony Express, but these were no ponies. These were high-quality, high-class horses. And so we see this proclamation. And then notice how the people responded to this proclamation, the second proclamation. Verse 15, then Mordecai, went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So here's Mordecai. Again, the last time we saw Mordecai, he was in sackcloth, right? And so now he's got royal robes and he was dressed appropriately for the king's royal assistant. This was befitting for his new position as the prime minister. But notice it says, in the city shouted, city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city. Wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. I mean, this was a totally different reaction from when the first degree was sent out. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 15, it says the couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa, and while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was, remember what? It was in confusion. That even the, the Persians were bewildered at this edict of King Ahasuerus that he had been talked into by Haman to treat their enemies so harshly. They, they had, the Persians had been very gracious to, their, to, the, to foreigners. Let them go back to their, their homelands. And so this was confusing to uh, obviously the Jews, but also even to the Persians. But now the Jews were relieved and they were elated. They went from weeping and mourning and wailing to singing and to dancing and they even had a party, it says. They were feasting, and they, 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 they came up with a holiday, which we know today as the, the Feast of Purim, which we're going to learn about next week in chapters 9 and 10. It's a holiday that the Jews still celebrate to this day, one of the most festive um, holidays of the year for uh, Judaism. And so they basically threw a party is what they did. And we're going to see next week that it, it was really a providence party is what it was. But notice the last phrase here, and I've simply called it the proselytes. As the Jews were rejoicing and celebrating and praising God for his miraculous deliverance, it says, many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So while the Jews are, 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 were filled with gladness at this providential turn of events, the Persians were filled with fear, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 13, what Haman's wife said when he recounted his, his horrible awful day, the worst day of his life, where he had to parade his arch enemy, Mordecai, around on the king's horse and praise him. Haman recounted to Jairus' wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Jairus' wife said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but, he, but will surely fall before him. Now, it wasn't just Haman's family feeling that way. It was all the Persians feeling that, wow, the Lord is on the Jews' side here and, and uh, God's good hand was upon them and it was becoming obvious even to the pagans that this was not just happenstance. The Persians were beginning to realize that the God of the Jews was, was providentially protecting them 
And so the tables turn so dramatically here is whereas before it was dangerous to be a Jew, now it was dangerous not to be one. And so some of the Persians decided to become Jews in order to be on the winning side. In other words, if you can't beat them, what? Join them. Look, look at a few verses with me in the Old Testament that I think you'll find interesting when it comes to understanding God's original design and desire for the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. This is verses 11 through 16. This is a song of Moses after Pharaoh pursued the uh, Israelites out into the wilderness and God miraculously parted the Red Sea and they went through, the Jews went through and just when they got, the last one came out and here comes Pharaoh's and all of his armies and his chariots and his warriors and then the sea, right, closed back over them and destroyed Pharaoh's entire army. It was kind of the exclamation point on all the other plagues that uh, God had inflicted on Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. But notice what it says in, a, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Kids, you remember that verse? Yeah, that's the kids' camp verse. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you've redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. So from the moment he delivered his people from Egypt, God wanted to strike fear into the hearts of all the other nations of the world. And so when the Jews came along, what would they do? Like, the waters of the Red Sea, they would just part and let them pass through. You didn't want to mess with God's people. You don't want to have what happened to the Egyptians to happen to you and your nation. Look at Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 26 Verses seven and eight. This is the blessings of obedience that, that if you were, God was um, promising the nation of Israel that if they obeyed him and kept his commands, this is what would happen. This is Leviticus 26, verse seven. You will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Can you imagine, right? A hundred versus five. Those aren't good odds, right? You're way outnumbered there, outmatched, outgunned. And yet those five Jews would send a send hundred other people, other soldiers um, on the run. And a hundred would send 10,000. Look how this theme continues in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter two, this was when Moses was reminding that new generation of the wandering in the wilderness of their forefathers, their moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, and they were about to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter two, verse 25, he says, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens who, when they hear the report of you, will tremble and be in anguish because of you. In other words, I know that you were told or your moms and dads were told that uh, the people of Canaan were like giants and, and you were just grasshoppers 
And, and there was no, and, and, and your moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you trembled. They trembled and decided, let's go back to Egypt. But I just want you to know, I'm going to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens. All the other nations of the world who you're going to conquer, who you're going to war against. Joshua, chapter 23, verse 10. Joshua obviously was the one that God chose to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Joshua chapter 23, verse 10. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. Now the, the odds are even greater now, right? Or even, even worse. I mean, you got one versus a thousand. One of your men, one Israelite soldier will put to flight a thousand soldiers. Why? For the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. And notice how this goes even into the future. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8. Just go to Matthew and go back a few pages. You've got Malachi and then you've got Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 20. This is a prophecy of the coming peace and prosperity of Zion. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So the nations of the world will be so impressed by what God is doing in and through the Jews during the end times, 10 Gentiles will be grabbing a hold of a Jew and saying, let me go with you. Because We've heard that God is with you. This was God's design for his people from day one. That they were to be set apart from all the other nations in the world. God would bless them so that they could be a blessing to, to others. And, and, and this would catch the attention of all the other nations in the world. And they would be drawn to the one true God. I think this is the same for us today as Christians. This is God's desire and design for us that, that, that we would be set apart and people would see something's different about you and, and, and I want to know what that is. And man, it seems like God is just on your side and he's at work in your life and through your life and I want to know how to be in that same kind of relationship with God. Again, at the big beginning of the book of Esther, the Jews were keeping a low profile, not wanting anyone to know they were Jews. Remember, Mordecai even told uh, Esther, don't tell them you're a Jew. In fact, don't go by Hadassah, go by Esther. But now, again, how the tables have turned, they were proud of their race, and it was the, the in thing to be a Jew now. And they were attracting others to their faith in the one true God. And so in the final irony, Haman's design here to eradicate the Jews ended up actually increasing their numbers. Now you've got people converting. They want to become Jews. And so talk about your wicked plan backfiring. Isn't that true, though, of the way God has built his church? Satan has sought to destroy the church from the very beginning by killing Christians. And yet we know that great statement that the blood of the martyrs is the what? 
the seed of the church. So it seems that the more and more God's people are suppressed and Satan tries to destroy the church, it just, it just backfires. It just, like, it just explodes and flourishes. And we've seen that throughout church history, particularly in China, right? When the Chinese government shut down the churches, the communist government just shut them down. The church went underground and, and Christianity exploded. They were trying to destroy Christianity. They were trying to root out Christianity, get, get rid of Christianity. And all they did was pour gas on the fire. And we see the same thing happening here in the book of Esther. What a, what a truly amazing turn of events. Now let's consider some implications for us. I think this chapter is a healthy, helpful reminder of the balance that we need to maintain between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Sometimes that gets blurry in our minds as Christians who we have a strong conviction, a a strong commitment to the sovereignty of God and somewhere um, man's responsibility gets lost. Now everything in this story we know is 100% dependent on God's unseen involvement. And we love to see that. We love to exalt the sovereignty of God and the sweet providence of God and all of this. But don't miss the fact that he chooses to use people as the means to accomplish his providential plans. He works out, again, we remember said last week that God's providence is his sovereignty in action. And so he uses means to work providentially, work out his plans providentially. And notice Esther and and Mordecai didn't just say, well, you know, God's sovereign. So I guess we just need to sit back and trust God and hope everything works out. Works out for the best. Is that what they did? No, they went to work. They did everything in their power to fix the situation. They, they took an active part in their own deliverance. I like that, that saying, work as if it's all up to you and pray like it's all up to God. Because it is. And all you can control is the effort, right? But you have to trust God for the results. But that doesn't mean there, needs to be, there doesn't need to be effort. God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. One commentator put it this way, quote, our assurance of God's sovereignty is no excuse for failing to do our duty, whether in missions, evangelism, or the building up of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you may be familiar with the story of uh, the famous pioneer missionary William Carey and his friends and his colleagues said if, they, if God wanted to save the people of India, if they were to be brought to faith in Christ, he would accomplish it without their endeavors. In other words, they had slipped into what's referred to today as hyper-Calvinism. Well, God's sovereign. He's already chosen who's the elect who the elect are, and so therefore, you know, whether we talk to them or not, they're going to get saved in the end anyway. So we sit around passively and disobediently not sharing the gospel, the good news of salvation with others. And so Kerry had an opportunity to stand up at a minister's meeting in 1786 and make a case for the importance of global missions. And so he was pleading with his fellow ministers to understand they had a responsibility to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. And someone said this, quote, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid and mine. Which may have sounded spiritual and ultimately honoring God for his ability to save whoever he wants, whenever he wants. 
But Carrie simply quoted Matthew 28, 19 and reminded them that Jesus commanded us as the church to what? Go and make disciples of all the nations. And he adopted the motto for his mission endeavor. It was this, quote, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. I think that's a great balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We do need to attempt great things. But ultimately, we need to trust God and expect him to do great things. So again, God has ordained not only the results, but also the means. And guess what? We are the means through which he chooses or by which he chooses to work. Whether you realize it or not, we could be likened to the Jews in this passage that here we are sitting here this morning shouting and rejoicing, feeling light and gladness, joy and honor. Sunday morning, as we'll see next week, is really our parim. Jews get to celebrate it once a year. We get to celebrate our parim, our providence party, every Sunday. That's what it's called Sunday morning. It's called church. And so here we are rejoicing with great gladness in our hearts. Why? Because we... We've received the good news. We've heard the decree. The gospel has been proclaimed. There's deliverance in Jesus Christ. And so we've come to party and to rejoice and to sing about it and to celebrate it. But there's a whole lot of people still left out there that haven't heard the decree. And that's where we have the the responsibility and the privilege of declaring the good news of salvation through Christ. I've got a little resource um, in my library called How to Read the Bible Through the Jesus Lens. It's a helpful little book just to kind of help see Christ throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. And uh, in their section on Esther, this is what they wrote, and I thought it was very helpful. God used Esther and Mordecai to bring about the deliverance of his people, but his people had to be notified. So Mordecai wrote in the name of the king and sent the news throughout the kingdom by mounted couriers on fast horses. God used Jesus Christ to bring about the deliverance of his people, but his people have to be notified today as well. We have the privilege and the responsibility to carry his news as fast and effectively as we can throughout the world. Not by mounted couriers on fast horses, but by word of mouth, by print and electronic media, by lives that communicate to everyone who sees us that we have good news to share. And then they quote 2 Corinthians 5.20, which you, I hope, are familiar with. We've talked about it. On numerous occasions, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, therefore we are, what? Ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so the chapter goes on says this, as Christ's ambassadors, we have been providentially provided to proclaim deliverance through him to those who are perishing. We have been made children of the king, and who knows, but that we have come to royal position for such a time as this. He has put each of us in a unique place at just the right time where we can be used to bring about that deliverance like Esther. We too might have to risk our own comfort or even safety as we carry out our divinely appointed task.
part of seeing the providence of God in everything is seeing that God providentially placed you in that subdivision in which you live and providentially put you next to those neighbors around you. And God providentially puts you in the workplace next to that person in that cubicle or next to the office of that other guy. He puts you in that school and in that classroom, sitting next to that individual. This is all God's providence. And perhaps, who knows, that God has put you in that house, in that cul-de-sac, in that cubicle, in that study group for such a time as this. Because there's someone in that neighborhood, there's somebody in that workplace, there's somebody in that school or that class that needs to hear the good news of the gospel. That they can be delivered from sin and death and hell because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The question is, are you willing to be that ambassador for Christ in the place where God has providentially put you? It may not be as fun as cool riding one of these royal steeds, right? But what a joy, what a blessing it is for us to proclaim the good news of deliverance to God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful book that we've been learning so many practical lessons from. I pray that you would help each of us to consider how inappropriate it would be for us to sit here together, to gather together every Sunday and Wednesday and other times of the week within the four walls of this this church and rejoice and to celebrate our salvation and the good news of deliverance in Christ and then to leave here and not tell anybody about it. How wrong is that? How messed up is that? Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have to, to ride out of here, if you will, not on a, a horse, per se, but empowered by your spirit to proclaim the good news of deliverance as your ambassador, as an ambassador for Christ. Help us to be faithful to do that. Help us to see, Lord, those around us as, as those you've providentially placed around us for the purpose of sharing the gospel. And that we would see you put on display your providence and how we have opportunities to talk with them and engage them. Even in how conversations or situations turn to where we can talk about Christ. And that we would give you the glory and the honor and we'd be able to celebrate and share these stories with one another to inspire and motivate us to excel still more in this area. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.